It is, uh, it's wonderful to be here this morning and to see some faces we haven't seen in a while. And uh, I'm not going to go through everybody's names. It's going to take a while. It's incredible to have you here. It's incredible that uh, I think there are lots of people in churches today. It seems like uh, Easter is, is a big thing uh, for many people. And indeed, it is a big thing. If you are uh, familiar with the Churches of Christ, you would know that the Churches of Christ have Lord's Supper every single week. And so every week, essentially, we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. This, this, and we'll do that. We're going to do that later. So I have two boys, those of you who don't know, and then the youngest one um, is the little blonde-haired one, the one that steals his teacher's hearts. And the one that invites animal aggression, I've told you about that before, he's been bitten by a snake, numerous dogs, an ostrich and a dragon, you know, dragon, uh, what do you call that, the legavon, uh, what do you call that, a lizard. Um, and and he, he, he says some interesting things. And this week he told us that his teacher taught him what's happening this weekend. And this is about Jesus. Jesus uh, was crucified, and, and, but before he was crucified, he actually had the last supper with his with his, um, his disciples. And he explains, what, he explains to us what this means. And he says, you know, and there's the wine. And then he says, and, and then they ate 7-Eleven bread. Those of you who don't catch that, unleavened bread. You heard the teachers say 7-Eleven bread. And I'm like, okay, so the 7-Eleven has been around for a while. That's where we buy the bread. So... We're going to have 7-Eleven bread in, in, in a moment's time at the end of this uh, sermon. This morning's um, title of, of the lesson is, A God Who Does What Other Gods Can Only Imagine. A few thousand years ago, Abraham took his son, Isaac, up a mountain, Mount Moriah, and those of you who know the story, what did he go do with his son there? He was going to go kill his son. It's an incredible story because I would never be able to do that. And I'm sure if you have a son, you would never be able to do this. And the story stands out because he believed it's okay to just obey God, take your son up a mountain and then go kill him there. But what we read through the book of Hebrews is that the reason why Abraham was willing to do that is because he believed... That even if he did kill his son, God could do what? Raise his son from the dead. So he knew either way, whether he kills his son or not, his son was going to be alive. Because when God makes a promise, he fulfills that promise. And God is capable of raising a human being from the dead. Now, <laughs> I want you to keep in mind this mountain, Mount Moriah. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 2, is the most intriguing passage. It's one of those heartwarming passages for me. David, this great man after God's own heart, he says the following. Here I am living in a palace of cedar, while my God, or the Ark of the Covenant, lives in a tent. Essentially, in our language, he's saying, here I am in a nice house. But God lives outside in a tent. And those of you who know the history of Israel, it was literally true. The Ark of the Covenant was living in a tent. And here, here King David is a king and he says, well, shouldn't we build a better place 
for God to stay in. And so it was brought onto David's heart to build a temple. Do you know where this temple was going to be built? On Mount Moriah. The temple was going to be built on the same place, the same area, where Abraham took his son to sacrifice his son. David never managed to build that temple, but his son did, Solomon. And so Solomon built this majestic temple. But when the Babylonians came about 300 years later, they totally destroyed the temple, reduced it to rubble. The Israelites were taken into captivity. And when they came back under Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt this temple again with money and with material that came from the king of Medo-Persia. And so they rebuilt this temple, this majestic temple, more beautiful than the very first one. And so that's the second temple. During the days of Jesus' life, the great King Herod, right? Herod the Great, he refurbished this temple. He upgraded it. He made it even more beautiful. And so when Jesus was on earth in the first century, this is more or less what the temple looked like. On Mount Moriah, this place where Abraham um, was going to kill his son. This is a massive place. This is an incredible building. Now Jesus walks into this place at some point in his ministry. Luke tells us about this. John tells us about this as as he walks into this area, it's one of the unique moments that he, one of the unique stories in the New Testament that we read about. When Jesus walks into this place in John chapter 2, what does he find? He finds a bunch of people dealing with pigeons and lambs, animals. There's money changes. It's turned into a marketplace. And what does Jesus do? He weaves together a whip and he starts beating the people. Chasing them out of the temple courts. Can you imagine this? He bumps over the cages that has the pigeons in them. And the pigeons fly away. And the sheep are running out of the temple. There's maybe some calves as well. And some goats. And these guys who's trading in money. They get beaten with whips. And everybody just runs out of the temple courts. Jesus is a nobody ladies and gentlemen. What do you think the people say to him? When he does that, this is the question they ask. What sign will you show us for doing these things? You come in here. It's like somebody randomly walks into this church with a whip and starts beating us and say, get out of here. You're turning my father's house into a marketplace. What would we say to this guy? Hey, bro, who do you think you are to come in here and chase us out of here? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Are you God? That's the question that they're asking Jesus. Like, who told you that you can do these things? Who told you you can just chase us out of, the, out of the temple? You're not the high priest. You're not a priest. You're not a rabbi. You are nothing. So if you claim that you're doing this and it's your father's house, right? Show us that he's your father. Give us a sign. Well, Jesus says the following. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So let's go back. So Jesus is saying, destroy this whole place. And three days, I will build it. Ladies and gentlemen, this statement, that statement, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. That's the reason why Jesus was crucified. 
You go read the stories again. You can go read at the end of Matthew, the end of Luke. They come before the Sanhedrin. He's accused us. And you know what they say? This guy says he will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. That is the most crazy thing that you can say for a Jew. It's like saying to a Muslim that his God, Allah, eats pork. It's like, it's like the worst offensive thing that you can say. This building is almost equivalent to worshiping God. Because God lives in this place, right? Isn't that what David said as well? And so when you say you're going to break down God's house, that's the most blasphemous thing you can imagine saying. This is the statement that got Jesus killed. They respond... And they say, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days. That's why they thought Jesus was a lunatic. Because he said weird stuff. Or did they not understand him? The beautiful thing about John, in John's account, is that John explains exactly what Jesus meant. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus made. That is John chapter 2. And I read to you verse 18, 19, 20. And this is verse 21 and 22. What is Jesus saying to them? They didn't understand this, but what he was saying to them is this. Kill me and I will be alive again in three days. Destroy my body and I'll restore it in three days. Break me down and I'll rebuild myself in three days. You think it's an impossible miracle to break down this temple and rebuild it in three days? Let me tell you this. Try getting somebody who is dead to be alive again. You want to see a miracle? Do that. Ladies and gentlemen. Today is a special day because it is a day on which we celebrate the greatest event in human history. And I honor you for being here today because this is real. You are here today because you believe. Christianity exists Ladies and gentlemen, because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Even if Jesus was a great preacher. Even if he was innocently killed. And a great martyr for whatever he believed in. Even if that was the case, that he was just a great preacher. We would not be here today. Christianity wouldn't exist. Go read the story of the apostles. What happened with them? They walked with Jesus, listened to his teaching. And what did he tell them? He said to them, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. Okay, I'm going to. He made lots of promises. He said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my father's house. He spoke about Israel and he's going to restore all things. And he's going to be with them and he's going to be in them. All of these promises and many of those things they didn't understand. And then he gets nailed to a cross and he dies. What do you think went on in their minds those three days? They're like, well, this guy made all kinds of promises that life's going to get better. The Romans are going to be defeated. Oh, at least that's how they interpreted it. And then suddenly he's dead. They were like, 
Oh my goodness, we believe the liar. We believe the hoax. Christianity doesn't exist because Jesus was placed on a cross. That's not why it exists. Christianity doesn't exist because Jesus was a great preacher. Christianity exists because Jesus rose from the grave. That's why. You can imagine what these guys are thinking. We wasted our time. Let's go back to fishing. Wasted our time with this guy. We just wasted three years. The apostles saw a dead man walking and talking. And it was so real to them. Listen to this carefully. It was so real to them that they gave up their lives for him. All of them died. A vicious death, except John, for believing this thing that you, you believe and I believe that we've come here for today. And in a time when writing was very scarce, believe it or not, people in the first century didn't all have pens. They didn't all have little books to write on. It was scarce. You had to have scribes, people who were trained to write. And this story that we've come to celebrate today was written down. There's more than 24,000 copies of this in a time where people didn't write. Why did they go through such extraordinary measures to write down this story? That we have this story in three major continents from the earliest dates in three different languages. Here's why. Because it was true. And they wanted the world to know this. The Bible, ladies and gentlemen, exists because the resurrection happened. If the resurrection never happened, they would have never said, hey, let's write down the story. Because there is no story. The resurrection existed before the Bible existed. The story is alive and the faith is alive because Jesus is alive. Faith, hope and love is alive because Jesus is alive. And there's no other. I keep on listening to these debates about the atheists and their problem with Christianity. And you're going to hear some of that today. But they always come up with this idea. But why do you choose Christianity over the other faiths? What, what about Islam? And, and what about Buddhism? Buddhism is incredible and Hinduism and all of those. And I can give you lists of reasons why Christianity is totally different. But here's one of the key things. You can go right now to uh, Megiddo. You can go to Megiddo right now. They wouldn't allow you. But if, you, if they were to allow you, you could go dig in the soil. There's a grave there. And you know what that guy's name is? His name is Muhammad. He's the founder of the Islamic religion. His body is there. You can go touch his corpse. It's there. You can touch it. They found Buddha's cremation remains in a small Chinese village. You can go touch his dust. That's the difference between our faith and any other faith. Jesus is still alive. And all the other guys who started religions, they are all dead. That's the difference. So when we say we worship a living God, we literally mean that. You want a sign. Listen to what they say to him. You want a sign to confirm that what I do, I'm doing by God's authority. Okay. Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to give you a sign. Forget about the healing of the sick. 
Let's forget about that. Giving sight to the blind, making lame people walk, and putting, turning water into wine. I'm going to give you a nice miracle. And what about this? Um, I will raise myself from the dead. Would that be a good enough sign for you? I think that that will be. Now, listen to this carefully. I did a bit of research this week on what happens to a human body after it's died. What a horrible study. The images that came up weren't so fun. So Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, right? His side was pierced. And you remember what came out? Blood and water. It wasn't like a little prick with a needle. They stabbed him under his rib cage and penetrated the pericardial sac around his heart. Because his heart, because of suffocating and lack of oxygen, they formed water around his heart. So when they stabbed him, they literally penetrated his heart. That's the only explanation for the blood and the water. So he stabbed. He's certainly dead. In any case, we'll talk about that. By this time, what do we know about his bones? Well, Psalm 22 tells us about that, that his bones separated. And also, it's a fact that when you hang with all of your weight on your body, your shoulders dislocate. Eventually, you can't pull yourself up anymore. Your tendons are hurting. They are tearing. And so, his body now, he's got a hole in his heart. He has holes in his hands, holes in his feet. He's lost most of his blood. And his, 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 his bones are separate from each other. At the same time that he stops breathing, the cells in his body, because they are now deprived of oxygen, starting from his liver, enzymes start digesting cell membranes, causing a mushy substance to leak out of his cells. In other words, you've got these little bubbles in your body, but when you die, because of the lack of oxygen, the cells of those uh, the, the, the membranes, the skin around those cells, they get eaten up. And so it just becomes mush. At the same time, blood starts coming out of some of these cells, adding to this mush. And also around the same time, the what they call thanatomicrobiome. The Greek word for death is thanatos. And so when they wanted to give a name to this microbiome, they called it the thanatomicrobiome. That starts to come alive in the intestinal tract between the small intestine and the big intestine. Now listen to this. When we are alive, most of our internal organs are devoid of microbes. Microbes is, for example, bacteria and viruses. That's the small particles of that is microbes. But when you die, and the thing that keeps these microbes at bay is our immune system. But the moment that you die, guess what happens to your immune system? You're dead. The immune system is dead too. So what happens is these microbes start from your gut, the death microbes, and start spreading throughout your whole body, goes into your heart, goes into your brain within three days. Within three days, the thanatomicrobiome has spread throughout your whole body. Ladies and gentlemen, at this point, you're not dead. You are deader than dead. It has taken over everything from the brain, every organ in your body. 
By three days, the soft tissue in Jesus' body was gas, liquids, and salts. He was a mushy thing with some bones inside and skin around it. That's it. Filled with bacteria. Thanatos. Death microbiome. This is a biological description, perhaps a scientific description of what happens in a body that has died. Jesus is saying, listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if this happens to me, this whole process of death, I will do what? I will reverse it. Which is impossible. I will reverse it. The hole in my heart will be closed up. My joints will move back into place. My blood will regenerate. My cell membranes will grow back. And the enzymes will return to their place. The death microbe will be ejected by a resurrected immune system. And I will stand on my feet again and I will eat. And I will talk. Because we saw him eat after his resurrection. This is an incredible miracle. It's the greatest miracle ever. A quick question. What do you think mankind's biggest problem is? And has been ever since the beginning of time. What's our biggest problem? What's this one thing that we cannot deal with? Greed is definitely up there. It's definitely up there. Death. Sin causes death. Death is the thing that we fear the most. Dying. Like, let's be honest this morning. Like, are you scared of dying? Just put up your hand. Anybody would like to volunteer? I'd like to feel how it feels to die. We know it's horrible. And we're sitting here this morning, and you have lost somebody that have died in your life. You know what it feels like. And that feeling, can you explain that feeling? It's horrible. You know why? Because it's actually unnatural. We're not supposed to be dying. Now we speak of death as if it's normal. Yes, it is normal because sin entered the place where we live. But if sin never existed, death would never exist. So it's unnatural. And so you, we humans, we've been trying to deal with death. Like, how do I avoid it? What can I do to not go there? How can I prevent other people from uh, not going there? How can I get my mom and dad to never die? Or my child to never die? We figured out the opposite. Like, if you want your wife to die, there's a way, right? We cannot stop death. We cannot reverse death. It is the one thing that we so desperately want to figure out, but we cannot. Even in today's world, there's amazing technology out there. They can give you a new heart. One of these days, they're probably going to be able to give you a new brain. They can give you a new kidney. But they cannot stop death. They cannot do this miracle. They cannot stop the, this death bacteria in your body. They do not know how to do that. They cannot reverse when enzymes eat the membranes off your cells, they don't know how to do that. Nobody can replicate what happened in Jesus' tomb. No scientist can do that. Who can do that? There's only God. The God who made the cell, formed the body, implanted enzymes, structured the immune system. If someone comes back from the dead, it can only be God. Only be God. Now let me give you a side note quickly. 
One of the greatest critiques on Christianity, and you will often hear atheists bring this up. This is one of the arguments that they throw out a lot. They would say this, hey, but if you look at history and you look at uh, pagan mythology and you look at these ancient Greek gods and Egyptian gods, the story of this great person having disciples and then dying while having an interesting birth, sometimes a virgin birth, and then dying, and then three days later, rising up from the grave, it's not a new story. This story happened long before Jesus. Lots of different gods had the same thing. Well, they were born of a virgin, they had some followers, and then they died, usually crucifixion as well, and they were raised from the dead three days later. So what makes the story of Jesus so unique? I'm going to share some of that with you from a, from a website. Not everything in here is, is accurate in my estimation, but there's a Cyrus, an Egyptian, Ethiopian, Sudanese God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 5,000 years before Jesus. There's Horus, an Egyptian, Ethiopian, Sudanese God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 3,000 years before Jesus. There's Krishna, an Indian God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 900 years before Jesus. There's Zarathustra, an Iranian God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 1,000 years before Jesus. Then there's Hercules, a Greek God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 800 years before Jesus. There's some more here. Mithra, that's one of the big ones they bring up. An Iranian God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 600 years before Jesus. Then there's Dionysus, a Greek God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 500 years before Jesus. Thamuz, the Babylonian God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 2,000 years before Jesus. Then there's Hermes, a Greek God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 200 years before Jesus. And Adonis, a Phoenician God. He was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 200 years before Jesus. And then they add Jesus right here at the end. Jesus Christ, a Roman God. Uh, he was said to have been crucified. He died and resurrected 1 to 30 AD. What do you think is the point they're trying to make? They're trying to say, there's nothing unique about Jesus. It's just the story they made up. And it's the same as the other stories of all these other gods. Ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you a question. What's the difference between Jesus and all these other gods? Jesus is the only real historical Person. All of these others are made up. Mithra, Dionysus. Jesus is the only real historical person that lived and walked on earth. There are no, and if there are any scholars today that say Jesus did not really exist, it's like 2% of those who are scholars. And they are ridiculous and shunned. Even people who do not believe in God agree. Hey, Jesus really lived. He's a real historical person. So, hang in there with me. So they created these myths. Listen carefully. 5,000 years before Jesus, they created this story. This God that doesn't exist. But in my mind, he exists. And so let me make a story about this guy. He, uh, he was born from a rock. Like Mithra, apparently, was born from a rock. Yeah, it's not a virgin birth, but still, that will make a rock. And, you know, and, and then this person was crucified. And then this person, this, this God, 
was raised from the dead. Why do you think all of these ancient mythical stories included being raised from the dead? They are human made. Why? Because resurrecting from death is something that can only be orchestrated by a God. They knew it 5,000 years ago. The, the greatest miracle on the planet is raising somebody from the grave. Because they were dealing with death and they're trying to figure out how can we reverse death. And for thousands of years, people have not been able to do that. So for them, the biggest miracle is this. Raise somebody from the dead. Somebody's dead and somebody comes to life. Now remember Moses when he was on earth and he had the, the stick that turned into the snake? What could the Egyptians do? They could do the same thing. So miracles and funny things that happen have always been there throughout human history. But the one thing, no faith, no crazy sorcerer could ever do was raise somebody from the dead. So by the time when Jesus landed in Israel, the one miracle that everybody knew only a God could do was what? Raise somebody from the dead. Humans cannot control death or change death. So when Jesus came... He said, okay, you guys want a miracle? You got, that's what you guys say, right? Isn't that in the temple? They said to him, so what sign can you give us that you are from God? You guys want a miracle? Okay, let me ask you a question. What is it that only the gods can do? Raise someone from the dead. And you know what? The pagans have always tried to make a story about this. You know what? The pagans said three days. Okay, I'll show you. Because you guys believe that these gods were raised in three days. I will be raised in three days. I will show you. You want a sign? Go talk to the pagans. They know what only gods can do. I will show you. I'm a man, a physical man on earth. But I will show you I'm from God. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to defy death and I'm going to do it within three days, even though I'm crucified. This, these pagans, well, these people who bring up the, this pagan mythology as a, as a critique of Christianity are losing the battle big time. Because Jesus actually physically did this. It changes everything. So I will show you a real resurrection. I'll show you what it looks like for real. It's not some imaginary thing that happens in heavens. Because you go look at Osiris and Mithra and all these guys. Where did the resurrection take place? In people's minds, in their imagination, somewhere in the sky. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come show you in Jerusalem. At the tomb. Physically. People ask, well, how do you know God exists? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're asking the question. Well, how do I know God exists? There's no evidence for God. Well, yes, there is. I'm going to give it to you now. And you can go there right now. You can book a plane ticket right now. Thousands of people every year go to one place. They go to look at an empty tomb. That's the evidence. As I've said before, if the resurrection never took place, nobody would have written down anything and the apostles wouldn't have given up their lives. Why would they do that? For a, for a lie? Because the resurrection is so radical and seemingly impossible. Many didn't. Many don't. And many won't believe it. 
But it is a historical fact. It's not some myth. It's not some made up story. William Lane Craig, one of my favorite apologists, he said this, the great independently established fact, the empty tomb, the resurrection appearances, and the origin of the Christian faith all point to the same marvelous conclusion that God raised Jesus from the dead. Christianity is not a blind faith. It's a faith that's based on evidence. And it is reasonable. Now those who cannot and will not believe. You know what they've tried to do? They've tried to explain away this. I'm going to give it to you quickly. Just four things. Four theories. So people say, okay, we have 24,000 copies of the story. We can't deny the fact that Jesus lived. Yes, it seems like there was an empty tomb. It is there in Jerusalem. So how do we make sense of this? So they've come up with four theories. I'm going to share them with you quickly. There's the wrong tomb theory. You can see where this is going. So this is what they say. Everyone accidentally on the Sunday morning accidentally went to the wrong tomb. And they found it empty. Oh my goodness, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, what's the problem with that? There's a few problems. First of all, Pilate sent soldiers to go do what? Guard the tomb. The soldiers knew where the tomb was. What do we know? Mary and them, they were sitting there watching Jesus being put in a tomb. And this was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. His name was on it. You can't miss this. You see how they're trying to explain this away. It's impossible End up at the wrong tomb, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't make sense. The second thing is this. They call it the swoon theory. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just passed out. Well, let's try that. Come stab me quickly in the side. Let's see if I just pass out. He woke up in the tomb a couple of days later, rolled away the huge stone, and he escaped into the world. Now, I know some of you guys are tough. Like Silas is probably the toughest guy here. And Ryan. Sorry to the other gents. Imagine this. You're hanging on a cross. Nails through your hands. Nails through your feet. Your shoulders dislocate. Okay. You're stabbed in the heart. You've lost lots of blood. You've been beaten. They take you down the cross... And then you lie there for like 50 hours, 60 hours, and then you're just like, oh, you wake up suddenly. And you go roll a multi-ton rock away with your disjointed arms and a hole in your heart. It doesn't make sense. The Roman soldiers were liable for the death of those who were hanging on the crosses. Josephus writes, Josephus is a first century historian who lived during the days of Jesus. He writes about Roman crucifixions. And he says in all the decades that he's recorded Roman crucifixions, there's only once ever been an incident where somebody was taken off a cross and they were alive. And they were alive for 24 hours and then that person died. People didn't survive Roman crucifixions. They died. And then Jesus gets embalmed and he's got all kinds of linen around him. So he's got to get out of the linen with his disjointed body and, and with no blood in his body, he's got to roll away the stone. It doesn't make sense of the fact. 
And what about those guys who carried Jesus? I don't know if you've ever seen a dead person. It's pretty easy to recognize a dead person. Dead person is, is dead. You, you can see it. So are we saying that Joseph of Arimathea and his buddies, that they were just imbeciles? It doesn't make sense. Then there's the third one is the stolen body theory. So the very disciples who ran away when they arrested Jesus after the crucifixion, they risked their lives to steal Christ's body from the tomb, and then they made up the whole resurrection story. That is exactly why Pilate said, let some soldiers guard the tomb so that the, the, the body cannot be stolen. Um, if this is true, then what happened to those Roman soldiers? Also, then these guys, they basically carried on a hoax, a lie, and they were willing to die for it. Because they went on a told story. Jesus resurrected from the dead. We know he didn't, but he, you know, we say he rose from the dead. Where did you put his body? They had then an issue. Where are they going to put his body? I mean, they stole his body. But what if they did it for money? Would you, would you lie for money? Billions and billions of, billions of dollars. Would you make up a story for money? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Okay, if these guys were really bad. But in the first century, if you walked around and said somebody was raised from the dead, guess what they do with you? They kill you. They didn't make money out of the resurrection. It cost them their lives. So it's ridiculous to think that they made this up for some other reason. And then lastly, the hallucination, the hallucination theory. This They say everybody who saw Jesus alive after his supposed resurrection, they were just all hallucinating. I don't know how often you uh, hallucinate, but um, generally it's people who have some psychological problems. If I apologize if you did hallucinate recently, but maybe go see a doctor or maybe you did take some, some smoke of something, but hopefully you survived. You can go now, you can go smoke some of Green Tom and walk around hallucinating stuff. There's, there's actually quite a few people in this town hallucinating. I've, I see quite a, a number of people talking to themselves often. It happens often. Me and Darren saw a guy the other day on the sidewalk. You know, I don't know who he was wrestling there, but how is it possible to, for 500 people to hallucinate the same thing? 500 people, at least 500 people saw Jesus after the resurrection. How do we make sense of that? You can't. There is no such thing as group hallucination. And when, they, when that does happen, they all hallucinate something different. Like if you go to an asylum, you would see most people there hallucinate, but they don't hallucinate the same things. So this theory doesn't make sense at all. Brothers and sisters, they saw Jesus die. They saw Jesus alive after that. They wrote it down for us. They preached through every breath they had, even to the point of paying for their lives, with their lives, for this message. Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. He is God in flesh. He created all of this. He created us. He sustains us. He's coming back. We believe this. We believe what he says because he resurrected from the grave. He performed the miracle that only gods can dream about. Our whole faith, our whole belief system hinges on this fundamental truth. And Paul confirms it for us in chapter 15 of his 14, 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Everything is founded on the cross. 
So what does the resurrection mean for us? A few things. Number one, it confirms to all men that God is real and Jesus came from God. It confirms to us that what Jesus says is the truth. Jesus was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Romans 1 and verse 4. The fact that he arose from the grave teaches us that he is definitely God's son. Secondly, it confirms that what Jesus said is true. He said he would die and he would raise in three days. And he did as he said. Therefore, we can believe what he says. And if he commands something, we can obey it with confidence. Thirdly, it confirms that we can trust Jesus with our lives. We will never be put to shame. People in this world will put us to shame. But trusting the name of Christ will never put you to shame. Number four, it inspires us to not fear death. Some of us are sitting here this morning and we fear death. We can feel death coming closer to our bodies. I want to tell you this morning, you can have full confidence that the one you've come here today believing in is the one who will give you eternal life. And that body of yours that is death and the cells are decaying, guess what? There's a new one waiting for you. And the Lord that you serve is capable of giving you that body. It informs us of the power living within us. The same spirit that put those cells together again, that fixed Jesus' heart. The same spirit that lives in us. That's incredible. Romans 10, 11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. In the presence of God, his Holy Spirit and the angels of heaven, I commend you every one of you for being here today and trusting in God's one and only son, the Lord of heaven and earth. If you are not sure whether he is who he claims to be, don't stop doing your research. Don't stop seeking and don't fob off Christianity because of your predisposed belief system. Give Jesus a chance and evaluate him accurately, independently, and objectively. He is real. He has come to reveal God to us, and therefore he's of fundamental importance, and he's the solution to this life, and he's the solution to your own imp impending death, which is coming. Deal with him now. He's our friend, and he came to give us life. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. And I just want to say one quick thing about that. That we discussed last week, Sunday night. Last week, Sunday night, I did a lesson on idol worship. Paul writes to the Corinthians, who were, some of them seems to have been eating food that was sacrificed to idols. And we picked up right from the beginning to the end of the Bible. That for us, worshipping a, a piece of wood like the Israelites sometimes did and the pagans did is absolutely meaningless, right? That chair over there, there's no spirit in that thing, right? I hope we can all agree on that. All right. Just a piece of inanimate matter. 
And so you wonder, why did God make such a big fuss about it in the Ten Commandments when he said you shall not make an image out of anything in heaven and on earth and worship it? What's the problem with worshiping a piece of wood? It's just a piece of wood. Paul explains to us in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the Lord's Supper, he says that when you worship an inanimate matter, you are worshiping a demon. Because behind that image is a demon. It's a spiritual being. He's lied. He's helped you to believe the lie that your hope is in a piece of plank. And then he makes the connection. And this is important. We have here bread and wine. Now, the grapes, you know, that made that wine, probably from California or somewhere, we don't even know. I mean, the place where it's made is probably not even holy, and the tree that it comes from is not holy. It's just inanimate matter that you're going to put in your body. The same with the little biscuits over there. Those things are absolutely meaningless as well as the little chair or the idols that we worship. But, just like when you worship a piece of metal, you're actually worshiping a demon. When you take of this, you place it on your tongue, you eat it, you come into contact with something that's inanimate, just matter. You're connecting with Christ. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit that lives within you, that is huge. And when you partake of this this morning, just think about this. There is nothing in this dark, demonic world that can touch you because you connect it with Christ. So as we partake of this this morning, the gents who's helping you, welcome to come forward. As we partake of this this morning, and you're welcome to stand. Everybody can stand. Just know, this isn't insignificant. This isn't just a ritual. But there's a spiritual person in our presence here today. And he's in our hearts. He rose from the grave. He's real. And we partake of this. You're connecting with him and saying to him, I am your Lord. And I cannot wait for you to come back. And here is my life. Here is all my mess. Thank you for what you've done. The first thing the women did when they realized Jesus had risen from the dead and he appeared to them is they grabbed his feet and they worshipped him. Let's do that the same this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we give you all glory and honor and praise because you came dressed in flesh, lived like us, came to suffer death, our worst enemy. And Father, then you conquered death and you gave us salvation. And for that, we are extremely thankful. This morning, we know that we have hope. We have hope because there's an empty tomb. We know that there's a future for us because there's an empty tomb. We know that even though we die, we will live again because there's an empty tomb. Fathers, we partake of these emblems, dear Father, that represents your son's body on that cross. The same body that was resurrected to life. We know and believe that we come in contact with you. Father, we honor your son this morning at this time. And we pray, dear Father, that you will be manifestly present in our lives. This day and every moment that we bring honor to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I pray.